All right. Bless the Lord. I'm glad you're here tonight. Good to be in the house of God. We're still marching through the book of Proverbs, gaining wisdom every week. All right. We're in Proverbs chapter 13 tonight. So um, we're going to get into that. First of all, let's pray, though. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the precious name of Jesus. Lord, I ask you for your divine wisdom, your counsel, your understanding, and most of all, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us and direct us. Give us courage, O Lord. Give us wisdom to know your ways and your plan and your understanding. And Lord, that you would bring light and revelation and application to your word, Lord, and the things that you place upon my heart to say, to bring out in Proverbs 13, Lord, I ask you to help me. I need your help, Lord. Help me to say the right things and say them in the right way, Lord. Pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You know, um, there are a lot of things, a lot of themes. I guess you figure that out through the book of Proverbs, and we've covered really quite a few uh, passages and a lot of different themes, and we're in a section now of Proverbs where each chapter covers several areas, several themes. Uh, But as I read Proverbs 13, one kind of jumped out at me, and that is the advantages of the godly, the advantages of of living a godly life. I believe there are advantages. Uh, Now, there are also, in today's culture, in today's world, um, there are some uh, problems. There are some difficulties. How many of you would agree that being a born-again, spirit-filled Christian today that believes the Bible that it's getting increasingly difficult. There's a lot of opposition. I pulled up an article today. Um, it's by a guy named Michael Snyder. The title to the article is um, Governments to Christians. Don't you dare speak out against sexual sin in society. And that's basically... Um, what is going on. And it's kind of interesting if you think about it, is that they've culture and even the government has focused in on one way or the other to keep the church from speaking out about sexual sin in one form or fashion or the other. Let me just read the first paragraph. It says, in our upside down world, evil has become good. Good has become evil. Once upon a time, everyone in society generally knew what was right and what was wrong, even if they didn't always abide by the rules. But now the rules have been totally flipped on their head. If you choose to live a lifestyle that is morally wrong, you are celebrated in society. And if you choose to speak out against sexual sin that is exploding everywhere around us, then you are considered to be a hater and a bigot. In fact, governments all over the world are now passing hate speech laws that are making it a crime to speak out against sexual sin. With each passing year, it gets worse, uh, and those pushing this agenda forward are never going to be satisfied 
until those standing up for biblical truth are locked away in prison. And I've said this many times that that really is the end game, and that is that the enemy and those that are following either consciously or unconsciously the enemy, Satan himself, that they are not going to be satisfied until they can squelch all forms of Christian belief. And again, they're not really just interested in, at the beginning, it's squelching the Christian faith outside the church. Then the next target becomes squelching the Christian faith within the church. But eventually, it wants to get right down to the very individual. It wants to intimidate you so much so that you will not believe, profess, speak out, uh, and that somehow you might be intimidated to back off of your convictions. That you would somehow say, well, I guess the Bible really is, uh, you know, changeable and we ought to adjust the Bible to culture and, and I guess we ought to just accept everything the Bible says is wrong and maybe, you know, it's somehow, some way, uh, those who hate God want you to be silenced. And I thought, you know, the whole idea of Proverbs 13 that we're going to talk about tonight, and that is the advantages of godly, advantages of being a godly person. There are many advantages. Uh, It is to our advantage that we would walk in a godly way. Uh, And I, I have asked myself the question, what, what am I going to do? And you might ask yourself, you're the question for you, what are you going to do if they come to you personally and say, listen, you are going to have to stop speaking in that name. You are going to have to stop using that name, the name of Jesus. And you're going to have to stop professing that you believe the Bible to be true. What are you going to do if they if you're threatened with jail, if you're threatened with imprisonment, if you're threatened, thrown in prison, if you hang in there and and are faithful to the Word of God, what are you going to do? That's a question that a lot of us really have to answer. Uh, And I'm amazed, you know, the Supreme Court made the decision really was last year. Uh, And that is it was the decision of the Supreme Court, which I felt it was a pivotal uh, break point in our nation when the Supreme Court said that it would be the law of the land that same-sex marriages would be legal. When they made that decision, it, in a sense, legalized all of that. And it has been amazing how fast things have gone downhill since then. Uh, I noticed that uh, I read, uh, I think yesterday, and that is they just, New York City just passed a law, uh, the New York Public Commission pass a law that there's a $200,000 fine if you offend a transsexual person by calling them the wrong pronoun. Uh, If you say, use the wrong pronoun, then you are liable for jail term and a $200,000 fine. And so it's just, of course, that's, you say, well, that's New York. They would never do that in Houma, Louisiana. Well, you know, you just need to understand they're not content just to do that in New York City. That they're, They want to do it everywhere. Uh, 
But let me just ask you this question. I'm not going to ask you if you're willing to go to prison, but I do want to ask you another question, and it relates to what we're going to talk about tonight. Where, Where did our nation go astray that has brought us to this point? Where did we get off the track? And we've, we've been heading in the wrong direction for a long time, but where was it that we jumped track and, and started going astray as a nation? Took prayer out of school. Okay, that was probably a pivotal uh, beginning. Anybody else? Legalized abort- abortion. Okay, that probably was another pivotal thing. Terry? When what? The Beatles. Okay. You're not talking about the little tiny Beatles. You're talking about the... Okay. All right. That's an interesting theory. Uh, anybody else? Yes. What do you think, Sal? Took the Ten Commandments away? And uh, interesting, when they did that, it was like they don't want, it was like that belongs in the church, but they don't want it anywhere else in the public square. They basically banned the Ten Commandments everywhere else. You can believe them in the church, but you couldn't get them anywhere else. But now they're out, (laughs) now they're out to get them in the church. But you're right, that was another breakover point. Uh, Anybody else? What do you think, Ed? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, again, you know, some quote and say that was part of the Constitution. It was not part of the Constitution. Never was a part of the Constitution. Uh, it, was in a, it was in a preamble to that, but uh, it didn't even say it like that. Uh, but, yeah, they have reinterpreted it like that. Yes, up there. Okay. So add add to that, we have become, I believe the figures are correct in the saying that the majority of children that are being raised today are being raised by single parents. Whether it's a divorce or something, it's kids are not having mom and dad. And I want to tell you, that has an impact on children. Whether we like it or not, it is a truth. You know, God had a plan, and his plan was good, and that is his children need mom and dad, just, just the way it is. Interesting. Yeah, I believe that's part of it. And obviously, if you just took into consideration all the things you just said, that already tells you that there was not probably one event I don't think you can nail it down and say it was one single event. I think it was a series of events. Uh, And I always think about that verse in Matthew 13 uh, where it says, while they were sleeping, Jesus is telling a parable, and he says, while they were sleeping, the enemy came in and sowed tares. And then the tares would grow with the wheat. And you wouldn't be able to tell the difference 
between the wheat and the tares until the very end. And I often read that and wonder, has the church been sleeping and allowed the enemy to come in and sow the tares? And maybe we were afraid to stand up. Maybe we were intimidated. Um, I, I don't know. But all these things that you just mentioned, they were all trigger points that have now pushed us toward a faster and faster spiral. But I have good news for you tonight. Ready for some good news? The enemy always overplays his hand. It's true. The enemy thinks he has the victory and he comes in for the kill but he always overplays his hand. He thought he had Jesus. But God was working even with what Satan was doing and worked it into our salvation. And the darker the darkness becomes in our world, the greater your light appears. The more impact your light has. And just a little bit of light has greater impact when it's very dark. And so don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't get discouraged. The Lord is still good. He is still faithful. Uh, and even though it may look dark, God knows what he's doing. And so tonight, let's look at what are some of the advantages of living a godly life. So we're going to read Proverbs 13. We're going to read all 25 verses, and we're going to come back and look at uh, five things that I think are within this. A wise child accepts a parent's discipline. A mocker refuses to listen to correction. Wise words will win you a good meal, but treacherous people will have an appetite for violence. Those who control their tongue will have a long life. Opening your mouth can ruin everything. A lot of wisdom there. Keep your mouth shut. Lazy people want to get much, but get little. But those who work hard will prosper. The godly hate lies. The wicked cause shame and disgrace. Godliness guards the path of the blameless, but the evil are misled by sin. We're going to be coming back and looking at verse 6. Some who are poor pretend to be rich. Others who are rich pretend to be poor. The rich can pay a ransom for their lives, but the poor can't even, won't even get threatened. In other words, you don't even have a problem if you're poor. <laughs> who's going who's gonna to threaten you? The life of the godly is full of light and joy. I love this. We're going to talk about this one too. But the light of the wicked will be snuffed out. Pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. Wealth from the get-rich-quick get-rich-quick schemes, quickly disappears. Wealth from hard work grows over time. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. People who despise advice are asking for trouble. Those who respect a command will succeed. Obviously talking about uh, respect for authority. The instruction of the wise 
is like a life-giving fountain. Those who accept it avoid the snares of life. A person with good sense is respected. A treacherous person is headed for destruction. We're going to talk about verse 15 too. Wise people think before they act. Fools don't. They even brag about their foolishness. An unreliable messenger stumbles into trouble, but a reliable messenger brings healing. If you ignore criticism, you'll end in poverty and disgrace. If you accept correction, you will be honored. It is pleasant to see dreams come true, but fools refuse to turn from evil to obtain them. Walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get in trouble. Who are your friends? Trouble chases sinners. Did y'all know that? (laughs) While blessings reward the righteous. We'll be looking at that. Good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren. But the sinner's wealth passes to the godly. A poor person's farm may produce much food, but injustice sweeps it away. Those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. The godly eat to their heart's content, but the belly of the wicked goes hungry. And we're glad, verse 25, because we just finished eating barbecue chicken. Interesting, verse 24, it talks about discipline. And it says, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. And, you know, it's become almost illegal. You know, I know if you have uh, foster children, you can't discipline them. It's illegal. And, you know, you have to be careful. If you discipline your children out in public, you've got to be careful. Somebody's going to turn you in for child abuse. So it's, it's amazing to me how what has been accepted for thousands of years as godly principles, now it's been turned around and twisted to be something that's wrong or bad. I, I want to look at a few things here. Uh, first one, that is, I'm going to look at a godliness guards our pathway. And, and that's verse 6. I want us to go back to that. It says, godliness guards the path of the blameless, but the evil are misled by sin. And the whole idea of being misled by sin is deception. Because deception is what causes us to be misled. Rarely are we going to be led down the wrong path unless we're deceived. And Satan is a master deceiver. Even in the Garden of Eden, when he was deceiving Adam and Eve, he was subtle and he told lies and he told them in such a way that they didn't sound like lies. And so, you know, I thought about this and I thought, you know, how how the enemy is always looking to deceive us. And so what I want to do is I want to ask you, uh, what are some ways you can avoid deception? If, if, if that is a problem, which it obviously is, how can you avoid being misled by sin? Or how can you avoid deception in general? 
Anybody? I want to just... Yes, Jenny, how can you avo- can we avoid deception? Reading the Word of God. Yeah, and if we know what the Word of God says, then when the enemy or somebody tells us something differently, then we say, no, this is what the Word says. So just knowing the Word of God will help us. Yes, Penny? Yeah. Just having someone, a friend, accountability partner, uh, you know, your husband and wife are good accountability partners, but sometimes even having, if you're a woman, another woman, you can have someone to bounce things off of. If you're a man, having another man, what do you think about this? You know, I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about that, I'm considering it. Just bouncing it off someone can, can, you know, cause a lot of, I uh, can't avoid a whole lot of deception because someone might be able to bring out another way of looking at that and saying, you know, you really need to think about it because the word of God uh, says this or the word of God says that. And we don't have all wisdom. Nobody here does. I don't. You don't. We none of us have all wisdom. So really just having more people to bounce things off of seeing uh, things from another perspective. It, it's one way. Uh, of avoiding deception. Anybody else? Yes. Okay. I think prayer that God would protect your heart. Uh, and, you know, I think we can just simply ask, Lord, protect my heart from deception. You know, open my eyes to be able to see traps and snares of the enemy. I, I think many times it's amazing if you'll ask God. Uh, to give you eyes to see the snares before they come, you know, God will answer that prayer. Anybody else? How can you avoid deception? Keep yourself out of those situations. And, and I think there's really a lot of simplest, simplistic practicality of, you know, not putting yourself into situations where you can be deceived. You know, one of the things it mentioned, and that is walk. If you will walk and, and, and have friends that are wise, you will become wiser. But if you walk with people that hate God, uh, that is one way that you can get into deception by just being around people who hate God. And just the choice of your friends and I know that's a very practical thing, but at the same time, it is a way of avoiding um, deception, and that is choosing who you're going to be around and where you go and who, who you associate with, all those things. Another one that, that I think is important, and that is uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 3, says this. It says, this is what the Lord of the heaven's army says, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Some of the translations use the word deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams. So I would just simply say another way to avoid deception, avoid witchcraft in all forms. If you deal with or play with witchcraft in any form, you're opening yourself up to deception. You need to have ironclad rule in your life, you say, I'm not going to have anything to do with witchcraft, 
um, the occult. I mean, I don't even, you know, read horoscopes or, you know, some people are all into what's my horoscope say today. You know, you don't need the horoscope to find out what's going to happen today. If you're going to read something, read the word of God. But don't don't read things and get your direction. You know, don't you you don't need your direction from a fortune cookie or from or from they may taste good, but you don't want to be led by your fortune cookie and you don't want to be led by fortune tellers or witchcraft or Ouija boards or anything else, stay away uh, from that whole thing. I mean, those were so forbidden in the Old Testament that if you got involved in that, you were cut off or you were killed. So it was a pretty heavy penalty for even involving yourself in witchcraft. So one good way of avoiding deception. Uh, and, and another one, obviously, and that is secret sin. If you remove secret sin in your life, then that is going to help you to avoid deception because secret sins, when you have little secret sins, that gives you, it gives like the enemy a foothold. And those footholds then can, you begin to say, well, if you rationalize one little area, then it gives you the ability to rationalize bigger areas and then bigger areas until soon you're rationalizing whatever you want to rationalize and then you're easily set up for deception. Uh, Another one, obviously pride. Uh, I looked, I saw another verse, I believe it's also in Jeremiah. It's in 49, 16. It says, you have been deceived by the fear you inspire in others and by your own pride. You live in a rock forest and control the mountain heights, but even if you make your nest among the peaks with eagles, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. Pride has a way of making you think you're impenetrable and that nothing can touch you. Uh, Pride has a way of deceiving you. So walking in humility, uh, getting rid of sin in your life, uh, doing all of these things, I think, are ways to avoid deception. Any other, you think of any other ways that you can avoid deception? Yay. Amen. And I, and I, along that same line, put on the armor of God. When you get up and you spend time with God, you know, and one simple way of doing it is just start at the top and work your way down. Lord, I pray that today I would have the helmet of salvation, that I would have the assurance of my salvation. Uh, you know, and then you would talk about Lord, I want the, the breastplate of truth and righteousness in my life. Let me walk uh, with righteousness and truth in my life. And, and, and then the girdle, the breastplate or the girdle of truth. Uh, and, and, and then you have the sword of the Spirit. 
uh, and then you have the shield of faith and then your feet to be shed with the, the gospel of peace. A willingness, Lord, give me a willingness. And I think that's really what it's talking about. Lord, give me a willingness to go with my feet to share the gospel to other people. You know, again, all those things, praying, seeking God's face, spending time with him in the morning, putting on the armor of God are ways that we can protect ourselves from from deception. The second thing, and that is godliness gives great joy. Uh, Look at Proverbs 13, 9. I love this. What, what a way. The life of the godly is full of light and joy. But the light of the wicked will be snuffed out. Now, in this particular context, the light is referring to influence. The influence, the life of the godly is full of influence. In other words, we touch other people's lives. And when we touch other people's life, And we influence them with the light that is in us. Remember, Jesus said he was the light of the world. But then he also turned around and said, you are the light of the world. So the idea was that he is the light of the world, but he lives in us. So his light would live in us. And that light produces what? Great joy. And, you know, I've, I've always believed that the greatest joy that we have is that we are living and fulfilling the destiny of God in our life. And I wonder if, if today, if, if you have the confidence, I am fulfilling God's plan for my life. You know, and I, I want to say this, I'm going to be clear about this. Fulfilling the destiny of God is not so much in, quote, what you achieve, but it's in your relationship with Him. Knowing Him, loving Him, Knowing that he loves you, having that intimate relationship with him, you know, that is the fulfillment of your life. And then doing those things that he tells you to do. And what I, if you will seek to know him, then you will do the things he calls you to do. A lot of people get that backward. They want to work on doing what God wants them to do. But then they forget or they neglect spending time with him. And I believe if you focus on spending time with him, loving him, knowing him, worshiping him, having a relationship with him, then a natural result of that relationship is that you will find and do what God wants you to do. One will flow from the other. But if you focus only on the doing and you forget the knowing then you will soon tire out and get weary. And it just gets old and boring. And you stop. But if you keep up that knowing and and that intimate relationship with Him, then you're doing the will of God. Never gets old. Never gets, you know... It's always fresh. It's always exciting. It's like every day you get up and I'm excited. Lord, what do you have for me today? What is your plan for my life today? And whether it's simply spending time with him, that's great. If you want, he wants you to speak to a thousand people, that's great. If he wants you to go minister to your children, that's great. 
If you're going to take care of your grandchildren that day, that's great. If you're going to speak to your, uh, your friend and about Jesus, that's great. You know, whatever it is, whether it's big or small, or it doesn't matter. You spent time with Him. That's the most important thing. You know Him, and he, you know He loves you. And then, Lord, what do you want me to do? What, are, what, what is the... And that fulfilling the destiny of God brings light, influence. And what happens then is we have great joy. You know, and joy doesn't come from being happy. You understand what I mean when I say that? Great joy is not being happy. Happiness is temporal. It's it's based on what happens. Comes, it goes. You might be happy. And, you know, the world is selling you the bill of goods that if you will be, quote, happy, then you will be joyful. No, if you're happy... It may be enjoyable for a time, but it doesn't give you joy. Joy is a deep inward knowing that you're fulfilling the call of God and that you're knowing him and that you're fulfilling the destiny for your life. That's joy. And that means even if you're like Paul and you're in prison, (laughs) because Paul And Barnabas, they had joy and were worshiping God while they're in prison. The location of where you are and what your circumstances are has nothing to do with your joy. Your joy is all based on your relationship with Him. And so that's why I love this verse 9. He says, again, I'm going to read it again. The life of the godly is full of light and joy. But the light of the wicked will be snuffed out. In other words, the influence of the wicked is not going to last. So how can you make sure you're walking in the light? I've been asking a question each time we talk about this. How can you make sure you're walking in the light? Mike? Love it. Anybody else? How you can make sure you're walking in the light? Hey, Tracy. Yeah. And, and, and going and directly with that, let's say our feelings... Like we're feeling lonely, we're feeling sad, we're feeling like, you know, we're not feeling good. Feelings are fickle. Feelings come and go. And this is where, and you're talking about someone who would help you. 
of godly friend. Yeah. Okay. And then that person can remind you that, you know, even though you're not feeling good, he's still faithful. He still loves you. Uh, And, you know, when we're depressed and someone tells us to be encouraged, a lot of times we want to tell them to shut up. (laughs) Because we're depressed and we don't want anybody telling us not to be that way. Tell them anyway. Tell them anyway. Remind them of the faithfulness of God. Third thing I want to see, and that is godliness is a life-giving fountain. I don't know if you saw this, but it's verse 14. What a, what a powerful uh, passage. The instruction of the wise is like a life-giving fountain. And those who accept it avoid the snares of death. Okay, think about the term, phrase, life-giving fountain. Now, what does jumps out at your mind with that in the New Testament? The woman at the well. What a, what a great reference to the woman at the well. Let's look at it in John chapter 4. He eventually, Jesus is, is talking about Jesus. He eventually had to go to Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Of course, that's the hottest time of the day. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Verse 9, The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides... Do you think that you're greater than our ancestor, Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. That's what Jesus offers, folks. And that's why I say it over and over. It's not about religion and it's not about church. It's about the life-giving well of God that He wants to open up inside of you. He wants that life-giving fountain that we saw in Proverbs 13. And that's it's so true. 
a, a godly person who is walking in God's ways, who has God living in them, and has made Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. They have a life-giving fountain within them. And you know what? You impact the lives of other people. And people will drink from your water. They will hunger and thirst for the things that come out of your mouth. It's amazing. And you don't even have to be super spiritual. Renee? Praise God. You know, it's, it's, it, it's amazing. And I, I believe Jesus knew both passages, both from Proverbs and from Psalms. He knew of the reference and the prophetic word that God has always wanted to give us, this life-giving fountain, this living water, this water that is not like any other water. And that is the only thing that can satisfy us. Oh, my goodness. People are not satisfied today. They're chasing all kinds of things. And somebody told me the other day, I I don't really understand. They're out trying to chase Pokemon or something like that. I, I, I haven't figured that out yet, and I haven't even bothered to read up how what it is or what it, how it works because I don't want to waste my time with that. But I want to tell you, I guarantee you, whatever it is, it will not satisfy you. You can catch all the Pokemons in the world, and it will not satisfy you. You can get a 100 million of them, it will not satisfy But living water, it will satisfy you. The life-giving fountain, it will satisfy you. And people are so gullible and thirsty. They're looking for the real stuff. And Jesus happened upon this woman and told her, he said, if you just knew who you were talking to, and if you knew the kind of life-giving water Living water I have available. You know, you would be asking me for that. And she starts to chasten him for saying he has better water than Jacob. She has no idea. He was long before Jacob. (laughs) He was the creator of the whole world. And he was much greater than Jacob ever was. But at the same time, She was a woman just like a lot of people who are thirsty. And later on, he tells her she has had five husbands. She's living with a man that's not her husband. She thinks he's a great prophet because he's able to do that. Jesus is looking to give us life. And then he tells her those who... Worship God in spirit and truth. That's who God's looking for. Yes, Bill.
Yeah. From the water of life. And it really ends with the water of life. But where did it begin? All the way back in Genesis. It talking about the life-giving fountain that flowed from the tree of life. All the way back in Genesis. So it has been from the beginning to the end about God wants to give us water. Living water. Life-giving water. Water that satisfies us. Fulfills us and give us peace. Just a couple of things I want us to see uh, in here. And that is... um, uh, Let me just... I want to say this one thing. There are times, uh, how do I say this? I mean, we have we have rivers of living water within us. We have the spring, life-giving spring of water. But you know, truthfully, there are going to be times in our life that we go through what I consider to be a time of barrenness. Just, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It just seems like, the heavens are brass, and you just feel like you're in a spiritual drought. How many of you have ever been there before? You know what I'm talking about. You go through those times, um, and, and it's a little hard to know. and You kind of wonder, God, where are you? What's going on in my life? Uh, and I just want to read to you a passage, familiar passage from the Old Testament in Second Kings. One day, uh, the group of prophets came to Elisha and told him, as you can see, this place where we meet is too small. Let's go down to the Jordan River where there are plenty of logs, where we can build us a new place to meet. All right, he said, go ahead. Please come with us. Someone suggested, I will, he said. So we went with them. And when they arrived at the Jordan, being cutting down trees, one of them was cutting a tree. His axe head fell into the river. Oh, sir, he cried, it was a borrowed axe. Where did it fall? The man of God said, this is Elijah, Elisha. And he showed him the place. Elisha cut a stick and threw it into the water at that spot. And the axe head floated to the surface. Grab it, Elisha said. And the man reached out and grabbed it. What in the world was God doing there? I have always believed that that small story was God's way of saying to us, when you lose your sharpness, accent is sharpness. When you lose your sharpness, what did he say? Where did you lose it? Go back to where you lost it. So if you're in a spiritually barren place, I want to say to you the same thing. Go back to where you lost it. And what did he do? He said he cut a tree and he put it right there. And when he put the tree in there, log, tree, whatever, it floated. And to me, that was a way of saying you get to where you lost it and you put the cross of Jesus. And you apply the cross of the Lord Jesus. You get back to where you lost it then you will receive, find again, that place of sharpness, that spiritual truth. God will replace. But, you know, sometimes we've got to go back to where we lost it. Maybe it was 
you know, you spent time with God, but then you got too busy. Maybe you got up early in the morning and spent time with him, but you got too busy. Life got busy and you stopped doing that. The word of the Lord to you is go back to where you started. Where did you lose it? And that's the word. Where did you lose it? What are you doing differently today in your life? Go back and put the cross of Jesus right there. And when that happened, that axe head floated. Now, I have to admit, that defies the laws of nature. Axe heads do not float. But it just shows you that more is going on here than the natural. He's dealing in the spiritual realm. And I believe he was giving us a spiritual principle. When you lose that sharpness in your spiritual life, go back to where you lost it and apply the cross. And you will find it once again. Fourth thing I want us to see, godliness gives us good sense. Proverbs thirteen fifteen. It says a person with good sense is respected. A treacherous person is headed for destruction. You read that same one in New King James. It says good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Old King James says the way of a transgressor is hard. Um, good sense would be what we consider to be common sense. How many of you know common sense is in short supply? As a matter of fact, common sense today, that's a real misnomer because it's not very common. (laughs) Why in the world have we lost common sense? Good sense. We've stopped walking in the way of godly. When you walk in God's ways and you know his word and you walk in his simple truth, you have good sense. You have good common sense and you make good choices and you walk in godly ways and you make practical choices that are good. But when you walk away from God's ways, you lose good sense. And, and, that, and that's the simple reason why so many people have no good sense. So if you've been wondering why some friends of yours don't have any good sense, probably because they're not walking with God. And then the last thing, number five, and that is godliness Leaves a valuable legacy. Proverbs 13, look at 22 and 23. Good children, excuse me, good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth passes to the godly. A poor person's farm may produce much food, but injustice sweeps it all away. You lose it. And the good news it is of is, and when you walk in God's ways, you pass on a godly legacy to your children. And I want to encourage you, don't worry about passing land, houses, cars, or anything else. Pass on to your children and your grandchildren a godly legacy. They can handle the cars and the land. God can bless them. If they'll walk in God's ways, he'll bless them, and they will have all they need. So some people get all bent out of shape and worried and, oh, there's work and work and work. I want to give my kids this. I want to give my kids that. Hey, give them a good name. Give them a good legacy. Have them walk in God's ways. Teach them God's ways and God's principles. The godly leave a good legacy to their children. And focus on what is really important. 
houses and land, all that stuff, it comes and it goes. It's not that important. But a godly legacy is important. What would you like to leave as your legacy? Tell me what your legacy. What what are you going to write? What do you want written on your tombstone as your legacy? They did this. Say that one more time. Giving, loving, and a devoted man. I like that. That's a pretty good legacy. Terry, what's on your tombstone? Child of God and a friend to all. That's pretty good. I know I don't want everybody to start thinking about dying, but uh, anyway. Hey, Renee. Have what? A servant's heart. And at your funeral, they would say, Renee had a real servant's heart. And children. They pass, she passed that on. It's not just we have it, but we pass it on to our children. And then they walk in our ways. It says in Third John, one of the greatest joys we have is that I, we know that our children walk in the ways of God. What a, what a joy it is that our children, we know our children are walking in God's ways. What else? Anybody else have a, uh, something they want as their legacy, Miss Cobb? John 3.16. Amen. I, I, we, uh, one time there was a missionary named Danny Ost came to our church a long time ago. And uh, when he died... He uh, he said, he told his children, he said he wanted a huge thing over his tombstone that said, Jesus saves. <laughs> Flashing lights. <laughs> and they did it. Yeah, they did it. Sixteen feet tall. Jesus saves. 24 hours a day, Jesus saves. And their children said they've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people come to his tomb and get saved. Jesus saves. He said, That's, he, he said when I die, I want to keep saving souls. <laughs> yes, Penny. Who spoke truth in love. I like it. Be thinking about your godly legacy. Not so much to put it on your tombstone. But that you would live it. Because if you'll live it. Other people will write it and speak it about you. Amen. All right. Let's pray. Stand up. We're going to pray for us to have a godly legacy. Heavenly Father we lift our hands before you. And I thank you, Lord, that there are many and wonderful and great advantages of the godly. That we walk in your ways and that it is precious in your sight. And, Lord, I pray that we would have a godly legacy and that people would see and know and understand our legacy is all about you and what you have done in our life. Lord, help us to live a godly legacy 
and pass that on to our children. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.